Well, we're drawing closer, ever closer. Did you bring a Bible with you? Yeah? All right. If you did, I'm going to give you an extra minute. I want you to find the prophet Micah. Now, some folks say, wait a minute, Micah? Is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. Old Testament. Said it's almost Christmas. Why aren't we going to look in the Old Testament? Because I want you to see what it's all about. If you can find the prophet Micah, I want you to find the fifth chapter. That's page 787 in my Bible. I love Christmas carols, and one of my favorite carols is O Little Town of Bethlehem. I remember singing as a child, didn't understand it, didn't understand what it was all about or what it meant, but I remember singing it. I loved singing this song, and I, I remember as I was growing up, as I grew older, I began to understand more and more the meaning and the intent and what it was about. Beautiful poem written by Philip Brooks, put to music. Every year I sing it. Every year I hear it on the radio. Every year it touches my heart. And one of the reasons that it does is the words of that poem are powerful. If you've never just read it, I hope that you'll take the time to look up, Google, get out a book that's got it in it, whatever, and just read the words of this beautiful poem, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I think the thing that speaks to me so much is where it says the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Everything that mankind hoped for and everything that mankind feared met at that point in time when a child arrived in Bethlehem. A lot of folks don't know what it was that inspired Brooks to write his poem. Well, it's Micah chapter 5, particularly the second verse. But this morning, to get a little bit of the context, we're going to read verses 2 through 5. But I want you to understand, even as we read that, verses 3, 4, and 5 are kind of telling you the after impact. But verse 2... That's what we're going to focus on. And so even after we've read it, don't close your Bible. Don't put it away. Keep it open. Stay with me because we're just going to dissect Micah 5, 2 this morning. Now, if you've got your Bible open there, if you can, Will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read together this morning from God's inspired word. God is speaking through the prophet Micah. In verse 2, he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, 
And he will be their peace. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I thank you for your word, for the record that confirms that before these events occurred, you knew they would occur. That it was your plan outlined before the beginning of the ages that was carried through to fulfillment and completion so that we might have a Savior and we might have life. Father, I pray this morning as we spend these moments together in your word that you would speak truth to our hearts. Teach us your way and give us courage to walk in it, Father. And now I pray that you would reveal your truth to our hearts. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We're going to move through basically the second verse. There are three amazing truths that are contained in this one verse. If I wanted to preach the entire text that we read, we'd be here through the afternoon. John, we wouldn't have to worry about getting him to come back tonight. They'd still be here, all right? But they wouldn't be happy, okay? You'd have a house full of Christmas grouches. So don't want to do that to you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus in on verse 2. Three amazing truths that I want to share with you that are found in this passage. And I just want you to look at verse 2 with me. And let's pick this out. First, Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Savior. This is what the prophet says, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Bethlehem Ephratah. Now listen, we're familiar with Bethlehem, right? This Ephratah thing just kind of throws people off, all right? It's the same place. Bethlehem Ephratah, two words put together. Do you know what this means? House of bread. About five, six miles to the south of Jerusalem sits the little village. It's not a little village anymore. It's quite a city. But, but in Jesus' day, it was a small village called Bethlehem, known to the Hebrews as Bethlehem Ephratah, house of bread. It was the center of an agricultural region, sheep and grain. That was what Bethlehem was known for, the shepherds and their flocks and the fields of grain. It was kind of like, well, Kansas. That area of Israel was the breadbasket of the nation. It fed the people of Israel. That's where most of their grain came from. The vast majority of the grain that was grown in Israel in that day was grown in that region of the country. It just is amazing to me because when I start thinking about it and I realize it's called house of bread, that there was going to be a baby born there who would be called the bread of life. In fact, Jesus himself brought that out in John chapter 6 and verse 35. Y'all remember? Jesus was the one who declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. But it wasn't always like that. Bethlehem started out being known as a place of sorrow. It's first recorded in Genesis 35, remember? In Genesis 35, there was a young woman by the name of Rachel who died in the vicinity of Bethlehem, giving birth to a son. She named him Benoni. We know him as little brother Benjamin in the story of Joseph. 
But now another baby is going to arrive. The bread of life, born in the house of bread. But Isaiah says of him in Isaiah chapter 53 that he will be a man of sorrows. And so that theme of sorrow continues to run through this village of Bethlehem. Now, to us, Bethlehem is just kind of a a little town off the beaten path, right? I mean, everything is about Jerusalem. Everything is about the big city. It's, It's not a place where there are palaces. It's not a place where the wealthy reside. It's not a place where great political events occur. It's a small village. It seems to us to be rather insignificant. But I want you to know this morning, I want to remind you, I think some of you already know, but I want to remind you of the historical significance of Bethlehem. It may be a little town, as Philip Brooks wrote. And it may seem insignificant in the minds of men, but in the heart of God, there's something spectacular about this place. And what do you mean? Let me just kind of walk you through a couple of things. I'm not going to read them to you, but I'm going to tell you where they're found. So if you take notes, you want to go home and and double check and make sure I'm telling you the truth, you can read it for yourself, all right? But there's a record in the Old Testament of a woman by the name of Ruth who found love in Bethlehem. It was there that she lived with her kinsman redeemer, a man by the name of Boaz. He fell in love with her. She fell in love with him. They married. They wound up having a child. And that child becomes the father of a son named Jesse. You might be familiar with Jesse's name. And Jesse had a whole slew of boys. Don't know about any daughters. They aren't mentioned. But he had a whole string of boys. And one day, a prophet by the name of Samuel came to Jesse's home in Bethlehem. He was searching. He was on a search. He'd been sent by God. Jesse had no idea why he was there. The people of the town had no idea what he was there. But Samuel knew why he was there. He had been sent on a search by God to find the next king for the nation of Israel. And he went into Jesse's home and all of the sons were brought through one by one. And God rejected each one. And then finally, the last one was brought in. You remember the description of him. It's found in in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He, He was just a boy. He had been out in the fields keeping the flocks for the family. And Scripture says that he was ruddy. Not sure exactly what ruddy means. I know what it means in my mind. Red faced. Fair complected, probably red from the heat. I always, I think of the word ruddy whenever I see some of our children on Wednesday night after we're done and they've been playing hard over in that west building and running and they come out and their sweat dripping off of them and their faces are red and they, they look like their heads could explode any moment. They're ruddy. But Samuel says he was ruddy, but he, he was handsome. And the Lord said, that's him. Rise up and anoint him. And he anointed him there in front of his father and his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of God came upon David in power. What an amazing thing. This is all happening in Bethlehem. And by the way, David is a great-grandson to Ruth, who was not an Israelite. She was an outsider brought into the nation. 
accepted into the Hebrew family. Years went by. David did become the king. You remember the story, I hope. He was a mighty man, a warrior king. It wasn't easy for his throne to be established, for his kingdom to be set. In fact, he was constantly at war, it seems, and he surrounded himself with great warriors. They captured the imagination of young men. They were called mighty men, men of valor. They were, I mean, these were the warrior of warriors. I mean, if you wanted to put it in common context, David surrounded himself with Israel's SEAL team. They were the baddest of the bad. And, and one day, David, in, in, in the midst of his thoughts, began to think about his home in Bethlehem and what it had been like and the things that he loved and missed the most. And, and, and he thought to himself, and he, he said, have you ever said something out loud you didn't mean to say out loud? This may have been one of those moments. And David said, oh, if I could just have a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem. I mean, in his mind, that was the sweetest, coldest, purest, most refreshing drink he had ever had. Of course, you know, if you remember a time when you were really thirsty and really hot and you'd been working and you came in and somebody handed you, yeah, that's it, right? Well, that's where he probably would stop and get a drink as he was coming in after tending the flocks out in the fields and he had been out and not had enough to drink and he was nearly dehydrated and he was overheated and he comes in and there's the well as he's coming to the city gate and he would stop and get a drink and in his mind, that is the best water anywhere in the world, period. And three of his mighty men overheard his words. And Samuel tells us what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 23 about these three mighty men who went and fought their way through the Philistine lines to get to that well. And they drew water from that well and they fought their way back through the lines and they brought it to David. Apparently he really wasn't that thirsty. Because when he saw what they had done, he took that water and he poured it out as a drink offering to God. He said, how can I possibly do this? How can I drink this when I realize what they offered to me was their blood, their lives? David wanted a drink. Years later, a man named Jesus sat beside a well at Sychar. In Samaria. Had a lengthy conversation with a woman there about her faith or, or lack thereof. But then he offered her a drink of water. And he said, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Because the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water. Welling up to eternal life. All of this ties back. To Bethlehem. You can see that man Jesus who said that? He's the baby who was born in that little town of Bethlehem on the night that we deem as Christmas. Little Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Savior. But I want you to understand something about this Savior. The one that was born in Bethlehem will one day reign. 
Now, a lot of people say, well, he doesn't reign, he died. Yes, he did die. But he rose again, and he lives today, and today he is at the right hand of majesty. And there is coming a day when he is going to return, and he is going to claim all things as his own. And my friend, when he does that, you need to understand, he will rule. He will reign. Even those who have rejected him will bow the knee. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who is born in Bethlehem will one day reign. Look again at Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Look at the middle of this verse. Out of you will come for me. Who's me? God. God is speaking through his prophet. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Now, I want you to understand something. This is not just talking about some local. We're not talking about a mayor. We're not talking about a governor. We're not talking about some local ruler. God's people are the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews. Whatever term you choose to use, I am not being anti-Semitic. I am not anti-Semitic. I want you to understand we are called to be a blessing and to bless God's people. And we are confirmed that if we do so, we will be blessed in return. God's people are the Israelites. They are scattered all over the world today. You walk by them every day, people who have Hebrew blood in them, and you don't even know who they are. And many of you sitting in this room may have Hebrew blood in you, and you don't know that you even have it. But God says this one is going to rule over my people. Now, I want you to take a step further with me. We're not just talking about Israel. We're not just talking about the Hebrew people. Now, it may be that that's how Micah understood it, but I want you to understand it in the context of today as we talk about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not just the people of Israel, but it is all those who have placed their faith in their heavenly Father and come into a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, God's kingdom will extend beyond the boundaries of the nation of Israel, beyond the bloodlines of the Hebrew family, and will include all people of all nations who have come to faith. That means that all of creation is drawn in under the rule and reign of this one. You say, well, how can you say that? Because John tells us in the book of Revelation that when the kingdom of God appears, there will be people there of every nation and every tribe, of every tongue. There will be people there who have every imaginable skin pigmentation, and they will all be gathered there together around and before the throne for one purpose, and that is to sing the praise of God Almighty. Now here, my friends, is the neglected part of the Christmas story. We get so caught up in the baby, the manger, the stable, and rightfully so. Those are the facts of the story. But this part that we're talking about right here and now, this part about him reigning, we we tend to to skip past that part of the story. Well, Micah says it's going to happen. Yeah, he does, but it was confirmed. When Gabriel the angel came to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and told her that she was going to give birth to a child, in verses 32 and 33, the angel said, that's the wrong one, there it is, God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
You see, whenever that is fulfilled in Jesus, it also fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. That he will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That he will be the prince of peace. That he will be the one who rules over God's people. He will be the one. What did, what did uh, Micah say in verse 5? He will be their peace. The prince of peace. He is the one who is going to bring peace on earth. Our tr- world is troubled Our world is looking for hope. Our world is driven by fear and anger and hatred. But here is the one, my friends, who presents us with good news, the very best news for our troubled world. He will reign and he will be our peace. How can that possibly be? Back to verse 2. And the third truth that we must register. He is the incarnation of the eternal God. How do you know that? Look at verse 2. Let's just read the whole verse again. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, that little town, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. He will rule and reign. But look, let's finish. Who is he? He is the one whose origins are from of old. From ancient times. This is how an Old Testament writer would describe the incarnation. This is how an Old Testament writer would describe what happens when God puts on flesh. A New Testament writer might say it the way that that Paul did. How did Paul say it? See if I can catch it. There it is. He was talking about Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in human appearance. As a man, he humbled himself. Maybe it might be written the way that John did. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, he was saying before the first day of creation, from long ago in ancient times, he was there. But he put on flesh. And because God became man, he understands our every experience. He understands our pain. He understands our fear. He understands what suffering is. He understands what hunger and thirst are. The only thing we experience that he did not experience himself personally is our sin. But as he drew to the conclusion of his life, he didn't experience sin because he sinned. He experienced sin because he who knew no sin became sin. He took our sin upon himself. You see, the eternal God put on flesh in order to become our Savior. And as such, he has the power to forgive sins. He has the power to meet our every need. He is deserving of our worship, our obedience, our service. That's who he is. And it all happened in that little town 
where all of our hopes and fears were met in a child. Every year I hear that song. Every year it sets my mind to spinning into all of the thoughts that I've kind of rattled at you here this morning. Because you see, that little town of Bethlehem was God's chosen place. I don't know why, but it was. It is. And he delivered in that place a great blessing to all of mankind. And that blessing is still valid today. You see, Jesus came as a Savior. He is still the Savior. He is the only Savior available. I'd venture a guess and say that if we started singing O Little Town of Bethlehem right now, some of you would sing along with me. Some of you would be a half account behind because you'd be waiting to hear what words I sang so that you could repeat them. But there's another line in that song that I want you to hear this morning. Not just that our hopes and fears are met in him, but I want you to hear this. Because this too is a part of Brooks' poem, and it is the truth. Where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Anyone who will open their heart and mind to Christ can receive the gift that he offers. I've had people tell me through the years, preacher, you don't know me. You you don't understand who I am, what I've done, where I've been, the things I've been involved in. And you're right, I don't. But I'm going to tell you two things this morning you need to hear. Number one, none of my business. And number two, if you will come to the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, He doesn't care. You repent of that sin, you come to Him in faith and confession, and my friend, He will wash you clean. And whatever you have been, wherever you have gone, whatever you have done, it will be as if it is no more. That's what a Savior does. And a Savior is what Jesus is. He will never force his way into your life. He will never kick the door down of your existence and say, I'm here, take it or leave it. But where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Have you opened your heart to him? If you haven't, I want you to know something. There's not a better time in the world to come to know Christ than the time when we celebrate Christ coming to know you. It can happen today. Will you receive the child? Receive the child, you receive the son. Receive the son, you receive the Savior. Someone might be thinking right now, I'm going to do a little more research. I think there's more to it than this. 
I want you to hear these words from the lips of our Lord. And I'm done. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is nothing to research. There is nothing to study. There is simply truth to receive. Would you receive it today? Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation, a hymn of commitment. I I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to the Word of God. See, it really doesn't matter much what I have to say, but there's not anything that matters more than what God says. And God says that he has offered you a gift, a gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's yours for the taking. The question is, are you willing to admit what God knows, you know, and everybody else knows, and that is that you're a sinner. It doesn't mean I'm picking on you, but God's word says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I see, God loved us so much. He showed that love to us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He couldn't have died if he hadn't come. We celebrate his coming because we anticipate what all that means today. Today, would you just acknowledge to to the Father, I'm a sinner. Would you ask him to forgive you? To change you? To save you? And to become the master of your life? Would you surrender to him? What a great day to come to know Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I've done that. He has control of my life. Everything is under his care and in his charge. Okay, that's awesome. Let me ask you about your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your classmates. Do they know about Jesus? Do they know that you have a relationship with Jesus? And maybe is it time to start looking for ways to have a conversation with them? Would you let God take charge and use you? Whatever it is he's speaking to your heart, whatever it is you need to do, whatever it is he might be calling you to, I ask you to do one thing. Hear his voice and be obedient. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for the record that hundreds of years before Jesus was born, you told us he was coming. You told us where. You told us why. You even told us how. Father, I praise you for that record that that proves who you are and your presence and your truth. But Father, even more than that, I praise you because it means that a Savior has come. This morning, Father, I pray for us in this room. If there's someone who doesn't know you, that today their heart would be open, that your spirit might convict and draw them. And I pray, Father, for all the rest of us, 
wherever we might be in life along that journey of following you and growing in our faith, that today we would find the word that calls us to the next step, to the next place, to the next portion of our journey. Now, fathers, we look ahead to the celebration of the birth of our Savior. May we be captured in this moment, rejoicing in our relationship with Him. Father, speak to our hearts. Draw us. Have your way. Be glorified in each life. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.